Um, and at this time, I'm going to invite you to join me in a conversation with Marianne and Andre. I've known them for a number of years. They're phenomenal grace teachers. Uh, they come to us from South Africa. I've met them at a Williams Coffee Pub in Milton. Or no, that was in Cambridge. This is the Cambridge one. Um, they've been here, and I hope they'll come back. Uh, the next time they're going to come to Ontario, I'm hoping that they'll come and speak at Hope Fellowship. So that's my goal. But I want to introduce you to them. I don't think many of you know them, but those that don't, you're going to love part one of the conversation. Next week, we're going to have part two. So let's dive right in because I don't want to waste any more time. So let's let's enjoy this. All right. Good morning. Uh, I'm going to introduce everyone to Andre and Marianne Robbie, and I'm going to let them do most of the talking, but I got questions. So um, some of you know who they are. Many of you do not. So I'm going to ask you guys to introduce yourselves. Uh, give me a quick update of your background, where you live, because your accents sound funny to me. I love them. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> but please tell me where you're from, where you live right now. I'm assuming you're in one place, but you're going to confirm it for me. Wonderful. Yeah, well, at the moment, um, we live in South Africa, and we are by the accent, you can tell we actually come from Texas, but um, <laughs> no. <laughs> so we are born and bred in South Africa, but we have traveled the world. We've lived um, 10 years in England, um, seven years completely on the road, no home, um, no home base. Wow. I think when you cases. last saw us, we were still in that process of living out of suitcases. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. <laughs> Yeah, okay. and so that's been an adventure. And um, yes, but we are currently in South Africa. And obviously with lockdown as well, mm -hmm. we, we haven't been able to travel over the last year or so. And travel's become a little bit more difficult. But we are so looking forward to getting um, back face to face with people, um, so many precious people oh, all yes. over that we've met and connected with. Yeah. So Marianne, you write music as well, correct? Like I've heard you play and sing and it's beautiful. Um, in and fact, you fit it into the stuff that uh, when you guys are together, I love how you just are naturally sharing your music and teaching. So is that true then? Yeah. You Thank you. Yes. You know, I think from, you know, when I originally started writing music and um, taught myself to play the guitar, it was, for me back then, it was an expression of, I just wanted to converse and relate what I was discovering in Abba's gaze towards mm. me and his love towards me. I just wanted to reflect that back and, and put into words this relationship. So, you know, a lot of the songs are really just kind of what God believes about you. And, mm. um, and that has just flown so well. I mean, we always just in conversation. It's our life. We, this isn't just, you know, doctrines we believe. Yeah. But it's, um, it's I remember the first time we, we met, we were, we were just 18, 18 just yeah. turned 18. Um, on the mission trip here <laughs> in Africa and uh, fell madly in love. And that one song... We, we, we got married like three months or so after we met. And uh, she wrote this <laughs> song about that so captured our hearts and desire for going. It's your provision inspires our lives. Yeah, Lord. As we give our yeah, as we, there's some who hold back what is due. It's a proverb. Mm -hmm. And there's others who, 
who give. And, and so I think that's how our lives together started. We, we had at that stage, nothing, <laughs> no income and very little knowledge. But I think what we did know is that we were loved. Wow. And that, that is the essence mm -hmm. of what people need to know in order to transform their lives. Well, the message, to, the message today is you're hated by God, right? No, the religious world says that. Yeah. That was very much the tradition that we came out of, uh, like a Pentecostal charismatic word where you first had to convince people how Right now, yeah. How, <laughs> what a horrible future awaits them if I continue in their ways, and then you can hang a carrot in front of them. Now, I think the verse that we we probably discussed that verse for a month constantly. Yes. Before we started going, was two Corinthians five five eighteen that God reconciled the world unto Himself, not holding the trespasses against them. And now he makes his appeal through us, be reconciled. In other words, whatever issue you think stands between you and God, it's not from God's perspective. It's not because he has a problem. He, he has embraced <laughs> and loved this world. And we thought, well, if that is if that is God's attitude, then that should be our message. Just the straight declaration of he likes you, yes. he loves you, he adores you, and that can transform your life. Yeah. Whether you sit in a hut in Africa without anything, if you know you loved, things change. Or whether you sit absolutely frustrated with all your wealth mm -hmm. in the Western world, but your life has no purpose or value. Be coming to that one conclusion that I am loved, not for what I have or don't have, but because of what God sees in me, an opportunity to unfold himself, an opportunity to live his life through you. you know, so that, that's how we began. <laughs> wow. And now what do you do? Like, uh, you, you've written some books. If you could just tell me a quick summary of which books you've written. You've just recently written one two years ago, which I don't have and need to get. Um, I know one of your books, Creative Chaos. <laughs> Creative Chaos, and we'll get a link put into the bottom of this uh, when, when, when this airs. It'll be, it'll be listed for sure. Yes. I know one of your and, books is required uh, reading for a global grace seminary. <laughs> That's when I, uh, okay. in fact, it was not around. It was back in that time when I remember some of those books were required reading. So that was pretty good. And it was good yeah. stuff. Okay. Wonderful. Well, um, there's probably five or six books oh, wow. uh, out there, but um, yes, the latest one, Creative Chaos. Is that your favorite? The, that, that came out just before the pandemic, <laughs> you know, months before. And, and it's amazing how throughout human history, when we face crisis, um, the kind of crisis that breaks down our paradigms, our ideas of how life is supposed to be, it is within those moments of crisis that we often begin to develop stories um, 
within that chaos. And, uh, and so the book is basically looking at how we have created meaning from the chaos that we faced and how often we misinterpreted the events, mm -hmm. we misinterpreted our circumstances. And when we begin from a place of lack and fear, we will always create victims mm -hmm. and scapegoats. And how the, the biblical revelation is starting to question our interpretation of our crisis and our chaos and gives us a new opportunity to reinterpret the chaos in a way that we can bring beauty and meaning and value from it. So that's, that's the idea of that book. I, if, huh, I need to read that. And I, I, <laughs> you're making me remember now, you actually did a, a very short encouragement video to, I don't know, you posted on your Facebook or wherever it was, and it had to deal with the, with the crisis of COVID and the, the depression and the chaos going on at the moment. I forget what it was, but it was so, so encouraging. I shared it with Hope Fellowship. I shared it with my Still Growing Grace family. Uh, it was really powerful because it spoke to the heart of, of, of fear. Like, we're not to be fearful. Yeah. And right now, I think this, this COVID thing has heightened all the fear that was existent. So it's almost like been the fuel for existent religious fear. Um, so whatever problems were lying under the surface in churches or individuals or in relationships, marriages, families, COVID really heightened the awareness of those. And if you didn't deal with them, it was good. It, it was, it's messy. It has been messy for a lot of people. That's what I've seen. What we, yeah. What we typically do as well is we look, we, we cannot understand what this crisis is all about and our frustration builds up to a boiling point. And then we, unfortunately, look for a victim <laughs> we look for somebody to to scapegoat this it's i have a problem there's something going on here and it's not me <laughs> it's you <laughs> and uh, you know that that kind of rears its nasty head <laughs> yeah. Yeah. wow well let's get into some uh, uh history of what your your journey of growth because one thing i've appreciated about you is uh, you don't teach the typical church stuff. <laughs> There's a, a message of hope and grace that has attracted me to the message. And even your style of teaching is it's, it's very gentle. Uh, there are some teachers who are pretty flamboyant and charismatic and, and, uh, and, and that becomes the distraction uh, and you can't hear the message. So I have really loved how you gently share hope, care in an authentic way. So thank you for that. Um, and what, what are you doing now? What, what's, tell me about the school that you're, you're leading and can we get into that maybe just a little bit? Yes. Thank you, Mike. Well, when Marianne and myself, I think it was our first mission trip to America, which was mm -hmm. what? About 2010. Yeah. 2010. At that stage, we, we lived in the UK but we make, made the decision that this is our passion, to, to be with people and to help them make sense of their stories or even more significantly break free from the structures of interpretations and the stories 
that has kept them captive. And when I speak about this story, I'm really speaking about you because mm -hmm. so much about who we are is bound up in our narratives. And so we started traveling and on our first uh, trip to the States, mm. I think it was the third or the fifth stop, mm. we um, met a precious couple who are still uh, very good friends of ours. And um, I made a friend, Tito Vitoli, and he kind of walked with me, discussed these ideas, and I think what touched him in our ministry is the idea that God is not behind the violence and God is not behind, doesn't have this obsession to, to punish. Mm -hmm. And he introduced me to Rene Girard. He said, you've got to read this guy. And um, I ignored him for six months. We came past their place again and we went for long walks and he tried to explain to me that this gives you the academic, the intellectual, the anthropological, all these backgrounds to what you're saying. And so eventually I picked up one of his books. Um, and at that stage, we were invited to do a cruise. I think mm. it was called the religious. Oh, no, that uh, was imagine. the imagine. Was that with cruise. Crowder and, and uh, Baxter? It, not this, that this one. This was quite a few years this ago. This one was with um, was, uh, Bill Vander. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. Trying to think of all the people involved. But in one of those journeys, um, maybe I'll give you a quick background to this Please. book. So, so Gerard, his idea, which is known as mimetic theory, um, to give a very quick overview, it is the human story. How did humans develop to become what they are? And one of his great insights, you know, when, when he wrote his first book, it was very popular to blame religion for violence. Mm. And Gerard made this amazing statement that religion doesn't cause violence. Violence causes religion. Wow. In other words, violence is more fundamental to human development, to the way in which we evolved than um, religion itself. Very often we think that rational beings kind of invented religion. But he, he showed within the development of humanity things that we can even see amongst the great apes now, where they would, in a time of crisis, choose a scapegoat and as a place where they can just have a cathartic release of all their frustrations, cast him out, tear him apart, etc. And so Gerard started developing this idea of how the scapegoating mechanism is at the very foundation of our societies, our religion, etc. Um, it's a it's a massive story, but I wanted to bring out just that aspect of it because to link it to the story of our cruise. Now, one of the things that he then shows is how sacrifice or sacred violence 
developed from this place where we're community in crisis, you know, where all the normal boundaries are broken down and it's a crisis of undifferentiation um, where nothing has meaning anymore because all the boundaries are, are broken down that they would, instead of everyone killing everyone, a new solution to violence was found. And that is, in, instead of that uncontrolled violence, let's control it and let's, let's all agree that we'll only kill the one, the scapegoat. And that cathartic release of their frustration has such a magical effect of peace on the community that's about to be made extinct. And there were probably many, many tribes and communities throughout history who went extinct because violence just ran out of control. But religion becomes the means by which violence can be controlled through sacrifice. Because when this community faces that same problem a few months down the line, they remember what solved the problem the first time. We should not all kill one another. Let's find a scapegoat. Let's find a sacrifice. And so it's an event that has incredible significance in the formation of what makes us human, because this is a death that brings life to the community. It's uh, a new order that comes out of the chaos that preceded it. It is, it is also a moment in which, you know, when a mob is in a frenzy of anger and, and violence, they are not led by rationality. They are led by their passions. Even today, if people go to a football game and suddenly a crowd goes crazy. <laughs> you mean, you mean soccer, right? Soccer, that's it. <laughs> just checking, <laughs> just clarifying. <laughs> and afterwards, they can ask the people who, who were involved in this violence, what happened? And I don't know, there's a spirit that came over me. You see, in those situations of mob violence, it's not rationality that leads us, it, it's passion. But within the scapegoating mechanism, when the body of our victim lies before this primitive community, it is also a profound moment in which the, the uncontrolled passion suddenly makes way for a focused wonder as to what does this mean? What just happened? And maybe that is the first time where the lamb slain from the foundation of the world makes an appeal to human consciousness. Mm. Well, let me say it another way. Maybe that is the first opportunity for us to recognize the innocence of our victims. Wow. Now that process continues to develop rituals are born from that religion is born from that and then in a twist that nobody saw coming in gerard's narrative he comes to the biblical story and starts showing how scriptures subverts the meaning of those myths to the place where jesus can say i've come 
to reveal things hidden since the foundation of the world, the very foundations upon which your culture, your religion is based, I'm going to expose it by taking you back to that event. You see, wow. what gave birth to our ideas of who God is, who we are, of the sacred if it was this violent event, no wonder we invented gods who are wrathful. Mm -hmm. We invented gods who demand sacrifice because standing before our victim, we don't want to acknowledge that we did it. We'd rather say justice demanded his death. Somehow this victim deserved it. And I was just a willing instrument in the hand wow. of a higher power. And oh, so we don't, want, we, we don't want to take blame, right? Yeah. <laughs> Deflect it. And the, it's amazing how the, you know, the, the, um, the people that God hates are actually the people that we hate, <laughs> you know, how we, how we, how we project our, an image onto God yeah. that um, was never there. Yeah. I just saw a t-shirt that said, God loves the people we hate. <laughs> nice <There we> go. <laughs> and that that idea is introduced by jesus because you see in the in the first iteration of how we we tell the story victims are guilty and the community is innocent if you read whatever literature is available to the time of jesus they might mention people, a city that was wiped out, the town that was, uh, there was genocide, but they never considered the fact that those people might actually be innocent, even if they say they weren't really guilty of the crime they were blamed for, yet who knows, they were guilty of something, so they deserved it. If you, if you were a victim, it's because the gods ordained it. But Jesus introduces this new idea that the victim might be innocent. And that completely transforms the meaning of the symbol of this founding death. So that our communities no longer has to be based or founded upon a tomb, because that's how we make community. We come together because of who we against. We come together because of who we exclude. We are a unit because of the single victim whose tomb is at the foundation of our culture. So Jesus completely overturns that symbolism. Because on the cross, we discover God's not the one who justifies our violence. He's the one who suffers it. And but that's not what we hear. We, is, but we, we hear the opposite. No. We say God in put, put on the violence. God is the violent one. He had to have blood. Yeah. I still hear today. He's like, oh, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. God's, you know, God set up the system. And, and that interpretation of the gospel is as ancient as humanity itself. It is no different from any other pagan message that says we have a God that justifies our violence, that demands violence, a God that's very much just a projection of our own confusion. But Jesus is this pivotal point in history that gives us an opportunity to to completely reinterpret what it means to be human, yes. 
what it mean, what God means, what religion means, so that our a whole new creation, a whole new culture can be founded on an empty tomb instead of the tomb of our victims. Mm. Uh, the tomb of our surrogate victim that has risen and declared forgiveness, that is the basis of a new way of being human. So um, that in a nutshell takes one little strand out of Gerard's ideas mm. to just give a taste of its implications theologically. Now to bring the story back to this cruise we did. <laughs> I took a long journey. That's fine. Take there. your time. This is but really good. I was um, at that stage starting to grasp the significance of this total subversion of sacrifice. And I remember we stopped at, can you remember that island? It was some mm. kind of Caribbean island where there were still these temples on which they, um, you know, sacrificed <laughs> humans. It's one of those islands. And, and as we stopped there, I actually read a myth that... It was a man myth yeah. that, that was um, originated within that culture. A myth in which, as all myths, um, has blind spots in which we justify ourselves, we blame our victim, and God is the one who sanctions our whole story. And so with touring that, uh, that island, I found the courage to, for the first time, give this perspective of the gospel. And the results was amazing. I, I remember there was a lady who was a missionary for like 40 or 50 years. She was a pastor for missionaries. And just the release of, I can fully trust my Abba, because there was always this little idea of, yes, God loves you. Yeah, tiptoe around God. Mm -hmm. Yes, mm -hmm. he's still quite fond of his punishment. Um, and I think much of eschatology even today is like that. That You know, in Jesus, God gave us a little opportunity. He said, okay, I can maybe forgive you, but watch out. If you don't repent in time, I'm coming back. Mm -hmm. And then... <laughs> it's like the cops thing. It's bad boy, bad boy. What you going to do when they're coming for you? <laughs> And so, yeah, that, that's a quick introduction into the theological implications of mimetic theory. There's much, our school, Mimesis Academy, there's actually two six-month courses. The, the first course looks at how it transforms our narrative. So, you know, all of us, we develop our own personal stories within the context of a larger narrative. And for most Christians, the Bible, or shall I say their interpretation of the Bible, provides the larger narrative. And so with mimetic theory, we provide a different way of interpreting Scripture, a different meta-narrative, and therefore a different way in which we can construct our own stories. Um, and then the second program begins with a, 
a month of a meditative course. Actually, this is a cool story how we got into that because it happens when we happened when we met uh, Mike just yes. in that same trip. Yeah. You want to? So, so yeah, we, I had a kind of secret desire to um, to just delve deep. I mean, we've had so many experiences in our lives where we have um, obviously, you know, used meditation in, you know, in various ways or um, deepened that relationship of silence or had these moments, these experiences that were here and there of this bliss and um, awareness. And I really desired to, to develop a practice that, um, that I could just really sink in to mm. the beauty of the silent practice. You know, as so many of the mystics have said, the language of God is silence. <laughs> mm. and, um, and all else is, is interpretation. And how... So it happened in Canada that we were we arrived and um, it was actually somebody else had organized the meetings. We hadn't met them and um, they'd arranged accommodation. And, and we long story short, we eventually met this, this beautiful couple and they fetched us from the airport and we were driving in the car and they uh, we were chatting. I was finding out, you know, what she does. And um, she said, you know, I've. I've been teaching the silent practice and, um, and, and leading people and leading my church in it. And I, I was okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and in speaking to her, she, she took us through a week of this beautiful uh, practice. Um, she was practicing centering prayer. And, um, and really, it's that 20 minutes of quiet in your day where instead of just focusing on the usual narrative that we are busy with. Um, it is that sinking into the beauty of this encounter with God that is beyond words, mm. beyond thoughts, mm. beyond even consciousness itself. Yeah. And, you know, because our thoughts become such a uh, whirlwind. No. Um, going <laughs> and so a way in which we can quieten the noise and what we found so beneficial about it in the school as well is you know beginning in that way just really helps people to to begin with this beautiful and to create the habit yeah to to form a habit of yeah. You know, rather than it just being because often the easiest things to do are the most difficult because we don't value it as much. Mm. And um, so it's, you know, helping people to value this beautiful practice of quiet and yeah. and then what emerges out of it. Because if our words are not connected to the depth of that silence, then they tend to just be flitty and up there. Mm. But when our words are connected to this this encounter into this place of abiding mm. then we find they naturally flow into mm. into beautiful meaning that we yeah. we haven't even considered before so actually well, that, that, that's go for it mark well you said it's something you'd never considered before what would you say to individuals who love jesus 
kind of tweaked an interest in contemplation or meditation. But when you use words like uh, centering prayer, I've heard the word soaking, I've heard all kinds of words. And some terms throw off people just turn right off, because they're associated mm -hmm. to people that are either too cuckoo, as in they they're, they're just not real to anyone else. They're in their own little bubble. And how would you address that? How would you invite people to consider this? Like you said, it's, it's something you never considered. How would you invite someone to consider the importance of this contemplation meditation type thing? Yeah, and I think you're right that, you know, and that's why we, we've tried as much as possible to stay away from the labels, you know, because mm. in some circles, you just mention the word meditate and the, the, the shackles go up. <laughs> and, um, you know, I just take it back to, to Jesus, you know, telling us to go into your room, close mm. the door and be with your father in the quiet, and I mean, he wasn't talking about a physical place of going, I don't think at that stage he had a home. <laughs> but, you know, he was speaking about actually finding a place, and he often used to draw aside to be alone, to, mm -hmm. and it, it wasn't, he wasn't doing it to get something. He wasn't doing it to achieve, right. or, or, you know, he was because often that that is another response that people will have. Well, why don't I? Why do I need to do something else too? Well, no, mm -hmm. this is exactly the opposite. Yeah. This whole opposite. The whole practice is based on the canonic love of Jesus, mm -hmm. in which He emptied Himself. So, mm -hmm. if you look at Philippians two, um, you know, instead of He speaks about having this mind in you that was also in Christ that didn't consider equality with God or this divine privilege as something to cling on to or mm. grasp at, but instead he empties himself. Mm. <laughs> and the first emptying we see him doing is he just grabs the disciples' feet and he lavishes <laughs> his servant heart onto them, mm. you know? And, and so in, in, the, in the biggest sense for us, this is, this is really such a beautiful fruit of that mm. canonic love of mm. um, not continually. And, and in, in mimetic theory as well, you know, um, it's so beautiful that we look at the pictures and we, we delve into ge the Genesis story as well. And here in Genesis, we see man who is grasping after, you know, the, mm. the nature of God out of a lack of being. Um, with this whispering voice saying, well, you know, you aren't quite, and, and God's withholding this from you because he doesn't want you to have it. And we've got that picture. And then in, in Philippians 2, we've got the absolute inverse of mm. that, where we're no longer clinging yeah. to, holding on to, grasping after, but we are. I think you're talking about rest, aren't you? Let it go. Yes. <laughs> We're going to come back to this if we can in the next uh, uh, in the next uh, uh, session. Um, but I love what you just shared, and we're going to wrap this one up, and then we'll we'll do one more because uh, I think this is this is a bigger story than we even thought we were ready for. And I hope those watching at Hope Fellowship, those who will watch it later, those who are going to watch us on Still Growing Grace, um, there's something here about less is more. Uh, something about being versus trying is becoming really evident. 
and we're so freaking busy in the West. It's crazy. So thank you. All right. Thank you so much. We'll come back and uh, uh, we'll, I'll, I'll stop the recording now and then we'll get into part two. Alrighty, I hope you enjoyed that. That was a phenomenal conversation and part two is just as good. You're going to love it next week. So please join us again next week. Um, I have to keep this uh, program to a, a specific time. That's why I need to cut this tight and short. So those that are supporting us on a regular basis, don't forget uh, we need it on a weekly or monthly basis. Uh, however you do it, if you want to do it once a year, fine. There's some people that do that and it's really appreciated. We're not doing the Zoom chat today. So we're going to pick that back up in September. We'll keep you up to date on that and check for your email this coming week. We did not send one last week, but we are going to send one this coming week. That's it. Hope you enjoyed this and we'll catch you next week for part two.